So you can turn to Revelation chapter 1. That is the last book in the Bible. Kurt, just so you... Is it good? Okay. As a child, was it ever a dream of yours to go to jail? When I grow up, I want to be a doctor or I want to work in a teddy bear factory or I want to go to prison. Yeah, those are my, those are my three, three favorite tanks. I want any one of those, I'll be happy. Doctor, table factory, go to prison. Yeah, that's what I want to do, okay? Now, if John the Apostle had had those requests, he would have gotten one of them because he wound up going to prison. He was banished to this tiny island called Patmos. And he was sent there because he, uh, with, he was sent there on this island with a bunch of convicts. And he was sent there because he talked too much about Jesus. Do you suppose that you or I could ever get in trouble because we talk too much about Jesus? On this island, Jesus appeared to John, and it, and it looks, according to the, the way it reads, that John was in some kind of a private worship session on, on Sunday, and Jesus, unbeknownst to John, just is behind John, and John doesn't know it yet. And as John is worshiping, then, John, then Jesus says something in a loud voice. Now, this is something that's scaring this 90-year-old man. But nonetheless, why do you suppose, why do you suppose that Jesus showed up behind John? Did he, did he show up behind him to scare him? Did he want to maybe one of these days scare John so that one of these days in the future in heaven that then John and J Jesus could go, <laughs> remember that time you scared me? Or did Jesus show up behind John because that really was the least frightening way that he was going to introduce himself, that Jesus was going to introduce himself to John, to lessen John's fear. Have you ever wondered why God has allowed you to go through some really fearful times? You ever wonder that, why, why God allows you to go to some scary place? Have, have you ever thought that God's moves were kind of weird? Have you ever thought that, that God's moves were uh, off base? Or did you ever think maybe even for a second that God was just, he's just wrong. God, you're wrong in allowing this to happen to me. 
the description of the revelation Jesus, which is really different than the Jesus that John was acquainted with from 50 or 60 years earlier, is in the book of Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. And whenever Jesus is behind John and Jesus says something to John, then John turns around to look at Jesus. And when John, who knew Jesus, saw Jesus behind him, this is what happened. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, because he looked really totally different. And as Jesus is inclined to respond, when you and I cannot do what is needed, then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid, I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This message that Jesus wants John to give to the Christians in Thyatira is the fourth of seven messages Jesus is delivering to John to go to other people. What could Jesus possibly have for us at the beginning of the 21st century that he said initially to the people at the end of the first century? And I think without too much trouble, when we look, we can see what God wants us to know. If you would bow your head, let me encourage you to do this way. Even before you know what God is going to say to you, and some, for some of you, I am confident that God is going to very clearly speak to you about something he wants you to do. For others, it may be kind of, eh, don't know. But whatever God communicates to you this morning, even before you know it, will you tell God, God, I'll be faithful. And when you tell me, I will go ahead and do it. If that's you and you're trusting God enough, tell him that right now. Father, even as I speak, and I've done this, whatever you tell me, even as I speak, I will do. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Revelation 2, 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Now, Jesus said this to the Christians at Thyatira. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus said something like that to us? That we do well that we love one another, we believe in his book and teach his book, we have fellowship, we are willing to do stuff inside the building, we help people outside of the building, we go places and we share the talents and abilities we have, we do things for people who are Christians, we do things for people who are not Christians to let Jesus be known. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus said something about, like that, about us here at Georgetown Christian Church? 
So what I want to do, and I'm guessing that you come because you want to be encouraged and you want to be challenged. And I want us to look at these five things that uh, Jesus has, com- has com- told him that he likes. <laughs> commended, that's the word, commended. He's commanded these Christians in Thyatira and see how each of us as individuals measure up, okay? That's the challenge. Self-reflection time. What would Jesus say about me concerning my deeds? What good deeds do I do? For some, they may have just popped in their head for some we're kind of thinking. Do I do good deeds even when no one is going to know? Do I do good deeds when I do a good deed and I know somebody else is going to get the credit for it? Do I do good deeds when it might actually cost me and it might be money or it might not be in time? Do I do good deeds whenever I have to step outside my comfort zone to do those good deeds? Do I do good deeds prompted by no one but God's Spirit? What good deed might Jesus be calling you to do? What would Jesus say about me concerning my love? I'm not talking warm fuzzies. I'm not talking romance. I'm not talking about brotherly love or the relationship we have with our buds. I'm talking about the love that Jesus is talking about here in the book of Revelation. It's the kind of love that has us doing the right thing for someone else, even when I don't feel like it. The love Jesus is talking about is the, what I do for someone else, even in spite of what I feel. The love Jesus is talking about is not a feeling. The love Jesus is talking about is an action, regardless of how I feel. You know, when someone hurts your feelings or does something worse to you, and you want to smart off back to them, you you may not want to, or you may want to uh, do something to them, you may want to sabotage them. You may want to talk to other people about them behind their back. You may want to get even and get revenge when they're not even expecting it at all. And yet, how did Jesus behave? No, I'm not saying we have to be a doormat. Jesus wasn't a doormat. But on the other hand, Jesus laid aside his rights to do for other people what they needed to be done every time. Every time Jesus laid aside his rights to do for other people what they needed to be done. Why? Because he loved them. Who does Jesus Jesus expect you to love? Who does Jesus expect you to love even if you don't feel it? What would Jesus say about me concerning my faith? Have you made up your mind for all times that in whatever situation I find myself, I am always going to stand for Jesus? Or do you evaluate your actions based upon the situation? Let's say you're out with friends and acquaintances and, or you're with another individual 
and this person or these people are wanting you to do something else. And you know that Jesus wants you to do plan A, but they're wanting you to do plan B. Now, if you've already decided you're following Jesus, plan B doesn't exist and you're going to do plan A. But do we ever put ourselves in a situation where we have to decide per the situation what we're going to do? Are we being faithful? Is it that we have to see if, well, if, if I do what, what I know Jesus wants me to do, these people are going to look at me weird. They're going to exclude me from their group or their club. They're not going to pay any attention to me. I don't get to get this bonus or whatever. I don't get to be included in their group. Do I decide at the time what I'm going to do? Or have I made a decision once and for all that I'm going to, whatever happens, I am going to be faithful to Jesus? Faithful people also do not consider their faith with Jesus to be in a compartment. This is my faith. This is my religion. This is my faith. This is my family. This is my school. This is my work. This is my vacation. This is my leisure time. Faithful people, faith is in everything they do. You can't pick out one thing, one area of their life where faith is not involved. Faithful people do not compartment. Sometimes, and maybe this has been you, sometimes people determine how faithful they're going to act by if, if I'm in church or if I'm not in church or if somebody from church might see me or if I'm in a crisis, then I'm going to for sure have faith because I really need God in a crisis. But when things are great, In what area of your life does Jesus need to take control? In what area of your life do you really need to be faithful to God? What would Jesus say about me concerning my service? One instance. Does it ever occur to you that on occasion, sometimes the most difficult place to serve is home? Maybe not for you, but for some, it can be on occasion, I know. Do you have a tendency to take people at home for granted? If they don't give me what I want, then I'm not going to serve them. If they don't give me what I want, then I'm just going to pout. I'm going to go to my room. I'm going to go out in the garage. I'm going to give them the silent treatment. I'm going to yell. Well, they treated me in such a way that they don't deserve me serving them. What have you and I done that makes Jesus have to serve us? Do we deserve Jesus serving us? Who does Jesus expect you to serve? What would Jesus say about me concerning my perseverance? Now, uh, on occasion, more than once, several times I have encouraged you to get into your Bible and to read God's Word even every day. And so you would think that since I encourage you as often as I do, that for me to get into the Bible, to read the Bible, it, it must be something that is really super easy. And if you think that for me to read the Bible all the time is really super easy, then you are wrong. 
for me to read the Bible and not fiddle around or watch TV or go do something else, I have to discipline myself. And I have to persevere in doing what is best for me in what area of your life, what relationships does God need you to persevere? The Christians in Thyatira were becoming more involved in ministry and Jesus said that that was a good thing and he commends them. But because he loves them, he goes ahead and he disciplines them because there are other things they need to do differently. Revelation 2, verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. If you looked at her birth certificate, would it say Jezebel? Probably no. Jesus is calling her Jezebel, I'm thinking, because he reminds, she reminds him of the Jezebel that's in the Old Testament. 1 Kings 16 through 2 Kings 9, you have Jezebel in the Old Testament. She is an absolutely horrible person. So, I'm thinking Jesus is putting this moniker on her. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So, when in Thyatira or when at Georgetown Christian Church would be the time that they or we should tolerate non-biblical teaching. We should tolerate non-biblical teaching like a never. So what if you have to correct someone? What if in correcting someone, they're going to be upset? They might even throw a big fit. They might talk to somebody. What, well, who would you rather be upset with you, a person or Jesus? Because clearly, we have the obligation to Jesus to have correct teaching. But when we correct, we have the obligation to be kind and never to be condescending or rude ever. But we always have to stand up kindly for the truth that Jesus gives us. Revelation 2.21, I have given her time, Jezebel, to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Now, has Jezebel crossed the line and come to the point in her life when she will never repent? Note that the scripture says that she is unwilling and because she is unwilling to repent and to change, what does Jesus say is going to happen? So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. So should we consider this bed of suffering that Jesus is putting Jezebel on is this bed of suffering discipline? Discipline intended to correct wrong behavior and to restore a relationship? Or is when Jesus talks about putting Jezebel on a bed of suffering, 
that he is putting her there as punishment. And when God puts someone in punishment, you're there. When God has you in punishment, there is no option for coming out under that punishment. Now, is this bed of suffering something that is actually happening, happening in Thyatira and people can tell and see? Or is it actually a literal bed? I don't know. Is this bed of suffering something where it might be that actually Jezebel has, has died and gone to hell? We, we, we don't know what it is. Can you imagine what it would be like if you knew you could never repent? When Jesus offers you now a chance to repent, what do you do? Do you put him off? Do you hold him at arm's length? Jesus continues, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So is children here referring to adolescents, munchkins, short people? No, I don't think so. I think if you substituted the word followers, that we would come up with the right interpretation. I will strike her followers, adults, dead. Does that sound a bit harsh, that Jesus would do that? Let's say we're watching a movie. And in this movie, within the first minute or two of this movie, there is this guy that, he's a bad guy. I mean, he lets it be known that he is a bad guy. He does bad things all throughout the movie. And when it comes 90 minutes later or however long, when it comes to near the end of the movie, and then the bad guy gets his, or he has this horrible death, or he's some sort of terrible punishment, and then we, yeah! I was in a movie one time when the bad guy got his, people started clapping. Okay? Now, do you ever want the bad guy to get his? Does God want the bad guy to get his? He does not. God never wants the bad guy to get his. What God wants is for people to repent and turn to him. God has absolutely no interest in revenge. He has no interest in evening the score. He has no interest in making someone pay for the wrongs they have done. What God is interested in, in you and I, changing our lives, going after him, and letting him be in charge of us. That's what God is interested in. So if Jesus is so intent on searching the hearts and minds of these people, now he's going to judge them for the deeds. If he's going to judge them for the deeds, why is he intent on searching their hearts and minds? Could Jesus be intent on searching their hearts and minds because what is in our heart and mind sooner or later comes out in our actions? And our deeds. And if we try to fool ourselves and we think these things up here, and we maybe don't let anybody, but if we think these things up here, sooner or later, what we think has to come out 
in an action. Our lives are changed when we do things because of what is going on in our head. Our, our actions are changed because of what is going on in our heart. And that's why Jesus says he's going to search our hearts and minds. What does God see when he looks in your heart and mind? Stuff that maybe nobody else sees? Because it's not out in an action that somebody else can see yet? Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold on to her teaching, Jezebel, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. What is it that you hold on to when you are going through a horrific trial, when your world is turned upside down, when you have a diagnosis that you don't like or something's going on in your family or your job or school or wherever, and then relationships are down the toilet, what, what do you hold on to? Let me share with you two verses that are two of my favorite verses in the Bible, and they might be your favorite, but it's in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. And they go this way, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him, and He will make your paths straight. There have been times when if I tried to figure it out that I would slip off the rope. But these two verses have been at different times for me. The knot at the end of the rope to which I can cling. And I have to trust Jesus because I don't make any sense in my brain. My God is a good God and he loves me. Does God love me because I am good? No. He loves me because he's good. He wants me to be with him. He wants me to be with him in heaven. He wants me to be forgiven. He wants to be with me when I go through the worst possible storm I could go through. He wants me to know him in the middle of that storm. God is not looking for ways to trip me up. God desires and actually requires perfection from me. But when I don't make that perfection, God gives me freely his grace that brings me up to his standard. His grace makes up for what I do not have. God does not want religion or rigid regulation. He wants a relationship with me. And he wants all of those things for you. What does Jesus offer to the people in Thyatira who are faithful and to those of us who are faithful today? In all honesty, what Jesus says here, I do not completely understand these benefits. 
There are Bible scholars who have studied this, and I have read some of the things they've said, and they don't agree on these things. What I do know for sure, when Jesus gives us something as a reward, and he says it's good, it is good. For the people in Thyatira, this is what he says. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. We will not be perfect, you and I, in our behavior. But we can and must live a life of integrity and faithfulness to the end. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you hear him? What has God communicated to your heart and to your brain this morning? Will you follow his truth? Is he calling you to repent? Is he calling you to give this section that you've held back to him? What is God calling you to do? In your bulletin, there's a green piece of paper called Sermon Notes. Some of you may have already taken them, but it's for now. And so this um, decision time is for two types of decisions. This first one is for those of us who are already Christians, okay? And so let me ask you on these five things, what is it that you need to do? On your deeds, what good deed might God be calling you to do this morning? What's he calling? As you, what is God calling me to do? And for some of you, you know. For others, who does Jesus expect me to love even though I don't feel like it? Faith. In what area of my life does Jesus need to take control? I just give it to him. I trust him. I have faith in him. I trust in him. I give it to him. And I do what he says. Service. Who does Jesus expect me to serve even when they don't deserve it? And perseverance. What would Jesus say I have started but I really need to finish? Where do I need to persevere? That's for believers. Option two is if you have never become a Christian. You've never committed your life to Jesus. You've never followed through in Christian baptism. This opportunity is for you. If that is something you know you need to do and you're willing to commit to God to do that today, and why wouldn't you if that's what you need, then when service is over, then you make your way to the lobby, to the next step sign, and someone, a decision guide, is going to be there, and they will meet with you. You can go and talk privately. And if you have a prayer request or anything like that, 
if there's a commitment, if, if you need to rededicate your life, if you follow Jesus but you need to rededicate your life, you can go talk to these people. And if you're watching us at home, then you can get in touch with us by the information that you see on the screen. And I can promise you that no later than tomorrow, we will get in touch with you. Would you bow your head, please? What is it that Jesus has called you to do? The song we sang right before the decision, uh, right before I came out, talks about making room for Jesus. And there's a part in it that says, this is my surrender. I asked Stephen if we could sing that song again than the one that they had planned. I want us to surrender. I want us, Jesus wants us, it doesn't matter what I want. Jesus wants us to surrender to him. Each one of us, all of us, every last part of us, every goal, every plan, every heartache, every tear. Is it your surrender that you are willing to give yourself completely to the one who gave himself completely to you? Father, may we do that. May it not be just something we do in church or around church people or when we're in a crisis, may we be faithful, imperfect as we are, but may we be faithful all the time. May we remember Jesus. May we follow him. May we surrender to him and make room for him in every part of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name.